Welcome to Radical Feminist Perspectives. Today we're going to hear about the book Rape of the Wilds by Andre Collard and Joyce Contrucci, and it will be discussed by Lierke and Marian Rutigliano. So thank you very much, um, and over to you. Morning, everybody. Um, Rape of the Wild by Andre Collard with Joyce Contrucci. And there are two authors, is uh, Andre Collard. Um, she was ill um, when she was writing this book. She had she had cancer. Um, so uh, it was finished after her death. It was finished by um, by Joyce Contrucci. It was published in 1988. Um, when Lier and I first discussed um, talking about this book, we were excited because um, you know this was one of the first um, first books that uh, talked about you know, men, male socialization um, being analogous to the way men treated um, women and nature. Um, there were not a whole lot of, of women back then talking about this. Um, so we thought, this is great. Um, and then I got to tell you, when we reread it, we were like, oh my God, she got that concept right. But but she got so much wrong. Um, there are a lot of things and, and you need to, it's actually a good, a good exercise if, you know, uh, when you read things that are <clears throat> that are very old, I mean, if you look at the second sex, that first chapter where um, she talks about um, she talks about the about science and the science of uh, <clears throat> of you know male and female um, reproduction, things like that. She got a lot of that wrong back back you know from the 1950s. Um, and similarly in this book, there's things that she just plain gets wrong, um, and we'll kind of go over that. But what she got right. Um, was that um, there is um, there is something analogous about the way men treat women and the way they treat nature. They are sort of inextricably linked. <clears throat> so you need to know that up front. And the other thing, one of one um, just interesting thing to know about Andre Collard is she's from um, she was from Belgium, and she was like a, a a teenager, a young woman during World War II, and during the war she was. Um, she was from the book active in the underground resistance movement. Um, the dense forests and wild countryside of wartime Belgium provided a natural refuge and cover for allied soldiers who were caught in occupied territory and attempting to escape to England. The Andre was frequently their guide, leading them to her village and eventually escorting them through the woods to the next underground resistance unit and route to safety. Um, and she carried messages from one outpost to another. She was stopped by the Nazis. So she, she was a, you know, she was a badass from, uh, from, from very, very young. Um, and whatever else she did, um, this was pretty incredible for a young woman to do in Belgium um, in World War II. Um, next slide, Joe. <clears throat> All right. Um, uh, whatever nature does that seems cruel and evil um, to anthropomorphizing eyes is done without intent to harm. And I actually can't read. Here we go. Um, nature has worked out a self-regulated flow of birth and decay, striking a balance between death and rejuvenation, which human beings and their propagating folly ought to have taken as a model. Where the human hand has not greedily tinkered, nature is spontaneous, awesome, refreshingly unselfconscious, magnificently diverse. Um, and the, you know, the, when, when you see a picture of, um, you know, of a, 
a bird eating a worm or um, a, a hawk catching a bird or a, or a mouse or something like that, um, you think, oh, my God, that's so cruel and evil when it's not. This is just, you know, creatures on the earth going about the business of, of living, um, getting nutrition for themselves um, and living to another day, living their lives. Um, so when we look at nature, when we look at how nature um, unfolds itself, um, it, it, it is it is not with with the same intent that humans do. Next slide, Joe. And we we recognize that. I mean, you know, a long time ago, we recognized that um, that there is a um, a certain kind of uh, um, a fundamental nature, a fundamental thing about giving birth, about living life, about getting nutrition, um, and about just going about the business of living. By whatever name she's called, the mother goddess is the archetypal female symbol. Those were the the first first gods. They were goddesses. And, and Andre says, what impresses me about her is that the ancientness and the range of her religion, as well as the fact that the people of the Paleolithic age throughout Europe and Asia possess the imagination, skills, and leisure to fashion her likeness of small clay figures, figures dated around 25,000 BC. I take the discovery of nothing but female figures from that period as evidence of gynocentric societies or matriarchy. And this is really important. Um, by matriarchy, I mean not that women were the dominant sex. The notion of dominance is patriarchal, but that female experience determined culture. And this is different from um, from uh, matrilineal descent, um, where which may occur in very very patriarchal cultures. Um, this is different from um, from you know women trying to to dominate men. This, this is different. Um, we um, we talked, I guess, a few months ago. Um, about the uh, um, about the early uh, women's right movement in upstate New York, where the um, women like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Matilda Jocelyn Gage learned from from the Iroquois, and where the where the women um, helped pick the chiefs. They weren't the chiefs, but they were they picked the chiefs, and the men couldn't go to war without you know without the women weighing in on it and saying yeah okay. Um, next slide, Joe. <clears throat> This is another quote. Um, women have exposed patriarchy as a disease. Um, and the treatment of nature and animals is the vilest manifestation of that disease. Nature and animals communicate their plight in ways this culture refuses to understand. And the, this book is a burning protest against the violation of nature and animals, which in patriarchy is inextricably connected with the oppression of women. Feminists must articulate this oppression as part of our holistic biophilic vision. It is a fact that no woman will be free until all animals are free and nature is released from man's ruthless exploitation. <clears throat> um, next slide, Joe. Um, Lier, um, you want to uh, weigh in, start yeah. weighing here? And, yeah. okay, can you hear me? Can, I just want to make sure. Yes. You can hear me? Yeah, all right. So my internet died, so I'm out on the porch with my phone. So hopefully this works. Um, okay, so um, this is... There's a part of this book where she's talking about the goddess culture and the the most the first art that we ever made, and the sort of biophilic impulse that is quite clear through all of this. Um, and she gets some of the facts a little bit muddled. So I just went through and sort of put this back together. So if you do read this book, uh, this will make a little more sense. So we're going to back up four million years, but don't worry, we're going to go quickly. Um, so Australopithecines emerges on the plains of Africa. And 2.3 million years ago, the genus Homo arrives, and that's us. 
So Homo habilis uses stone tools and has the brain the size of a chimpanzee over the next million years. So it's a long time in the making. Habilis undergoes this process called encephalization. So their cranial capacity doubled. And from there, Homo erectus emerges. And Homo erectus migrates out of Africa about a million and a half years ago, somewhere in there. There's various migrations and then they disappear and then they migrate again. So there's a sort of back and forth out of Africa um, into Asia and, and Europe. Um, but eventually, yes, uh, Homo erectus manages this. Um, and they are the first to use fire and some more complex tools. And then finally, Homo sapiens appears 400,000 years ago. And by 200,000 years ago, they are identical to modern humans. But what happens across this is that our brains get bigger and bigger and our digestive tract shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. Um, so we become this completely new creature that the, the planet has really never seen before. Um, okay, next slide. By 100,000 years ago, we're burying our dead. Um, this is the oldest burial site that's been found. It's at a place called Quepsa in um, Israel. I'm probably not pronouncing that anywhere near what it should be pronounced, but anyway, that's where it is. This is uh, in Israel, modern day Israel. So we're burying our dead. We start doing it ritualistically. So the skeletons are positioned. They're usually painted with ochre. The bodies are painted and there's all kinds of grave goods around. So what was important to these people is buried with them. Um, in this particular gravesite, the oldest musical instrument ever found uh, was buried here. It's a, a flute made from a vulture bone. Um, so um, they, they are making clothes from hides. They have jewelry um, and there's more sophisticated hunting techniques going on. And there's barter. They're clearly trading with each other from long distances for things like obsidian. And there's art. Um, so what are we painting? Next slide. Well, we're painting a lot of animals. Um, the oldest art ever made uh, by humans. Next slide. This is from a cave in Indonesia. It's 44,000 years old. So this image, it portrays a group of these creatures on the right-hand side are humans, but they're only part human. They're also part animal. And that's called a therianthrope. Um, and so they're hunting this, uh, this enormous animal with um, ropes and spears. The prehistoric cave art provides some of the most direct insight available into the earliest storytelling. So next slide. For the first few hundred thousand years, people are painting things in caves um, and on rocks and they're making little carvings, but they're, it's static and they're symbolic. We don't really know what they mean but they clearly held meaning for the people who made them. Um, so there's dots and there's lines and there's circles and there's handprints and there's little hatch marks and there's ladders and there's all kinds of little symbols that are just, they're very mysterious to us now. We don't have any way to interpret them, um, but they're everywhere. You know, these, the same symbols appear around the world. And so something was happening um, in our brains. We were compelled to somehow try to communicate something uh, we're not sure what, but one of the things that absolutely appears everywhere is vulvas. Lots and lots of vulvas. Um, so that's the sort of static part of this, the symbols that we start to paint. But then you get full on art. So next slide. And this is a story. Um, there's a lot going on in this. So the Therianthropes, again, half animal, half human. 
So there's one that has a bird head. Um, there's a quadruped with a human head. So why, why are they doing this? Well, I think they're expressing that they are still animals. They're human. So there's something else going on, but they're still animals and they know this. So they're on this sort of, um, I don't know, a continuum where they, they, they're human and they also are experiencing the world still through the sort of full monopoly of their animal senses. And so they're sort of back and forth. Are we human? Are we animal? Are we both? Are we something? What is this? And this, you know, clearly plays a role because you see this a lot in these cave paintings where you have these stereoanthropic forms. Um, but the other thing to notice in this is the size of the animal in this picture. Um, and this, so this creature is called an anora, and it's a small ruminant that lives in Southeast Asia. Um, and this reminds me of the, those Japanese landscape paintings where you have an enormous mountain and the tiny little people, or you have the enormous ocean waves and then the tiny little people. I think you all can picture these paintings that I'm talking about. So what looms large in this picture is it's spiritual and it's psychological, and it's the animal, this, this animal that they're killing, that they're hunting, because its presence is enormous in this story that they're trying to tell on the wall of this cave. So next slide. In real life, this is what it looks like. This is not an enormous ruminant. It's a, you know, it's a big animal, but it's not huge. It's not the size of a bison. It certainly isn't the size of what they, how they painted it. So clearly that's what's looming large in, you know, in their minds, psychologically, spiritually is, is, is the animal. Um, okay, next slide. So, you know, 20,000 years later, we have Lascaux, we have these other, you know, caves across Southern France and, and other parts of Europe. Pablo Picasso went to Lascaux when it was still open to the public. And his comment when he emerged was very famously, we have invented nothing. And what he means is that whole sweep of Western art, there was nothing original, that it was all there 20,000 years ago. Okay, next slide. So this is Mariwa, another hunting scene. Um, again, the giant animals, the megafauna. Uh, next slide. This one I find really intriguing because there's clearly women in this one as well. A lot of them are just stick figures, like they could be anybody. But this one, the figures on to the far right have breasts. So they're obviously meant to indicate that, that these are the women in this. What are they doing? We don't know. She's holding a rattle. Um, and all the animals are running away, except the one on the bottom is running toward the woman with the rattle. I have to assume this is some kind of a ritual to call the animals to say, you know, it's the still extant people do these ceremonies of, you know, little brother, little sister, we are hungry, we are weak, you know, we are just humans, we need, we need your help, would you come so that we can eat. Um, and this may be the first time that this has ever, you know, this story is told on a cave wall. We don't know. I mean, we're never going to know. This was, you know, 30,000 years ago. Um, but I I always love looking at the cave paintings. I just think that they are so evocative of who we once were. And this one especially, I just find particularly intriguing. Okay, next slide. All right, so you have all these giant animals. Well, what else were we making as art? This is the second most common art project. Um, and it's this enormous female. Um, so this goddess was found in a cave in Germany. 40,000 years old. She is in fact the oldest known piece of figurative sculpture ever found, um, carved from a woolly mammoth tusk and probably took a few hundred hours to carve. Okay, next slide. In fact, she's quite small. She fits in the palm of a hand, uh, was probably worn as a pendant. 
But the first art we ever made was the megafauna and the megafemales because that was who gave us life. And I think this is the beginning of religion um, and that that sacredness of awe and thanksgiving is built into us, body and brain. So these images, this consciousness is so primary that it carries from the Paleolithic through the Neolithic and into the present day. So Paleolithic just means before agriculture, Neolithic, that Neo means new. So the new way of life was agriculture. Um, so that's Paleolithic, Neolithic. Um, so, you know, we start with these Paleolithic images of these huge animals, these huge women, and then we move into the Neolithic. So it moves from agriculture, from hunter-gatherer to agricultural societies that came next. So um, next slide. This is from Chattahoyuk, which is one of the oldest agricultural settlements ever found. Um, excavation there is still ongoing. 95% of the figurines dug up are animals and the other 5% are females. There are literally no males, <laughs> okay? So this is what we're doing, um, you know, all these thousands of years ago. And it's the same template as the Paleolithic art. It's basically the same image. You've got the megafauna and the megafemales. Okay, next slide. So a little bit later, um, this is the goddess Hathor from Egypt. And again, you've got the same megafauna, the same megafemale. So cultures don't become patriarchal overnight. And even when they transition, when it's complete, the people still don't give up those biophilic religious images. Okay, next slide. So this is Artemis now. We're well into patriarchy in the Mediterranean region, um, but still, she's still here, this huge woman with her, her megafauna. Next slide. And this is later still. Um, you still have Artemis uh, with her hunting gear and the megafauna. Okay, next slide. And one more time, uh, you know, same image. Um, she's been pushed aside at this point. She's still in the Pantheon. She's not the center of it but she's still there at the wild edge, edges with the wild animals. Okay, next slide. And this still carries through. This is your basic nativity scene. And it's a woman front and center, bringing forth life on her own in this dark cave of a stable, surrounded by the same magic megafauna. I mean, it's literally the same animals. Um, and of course, in the folk culture of Europe, um, on Christmas Eve, the animals can, can talk. So it's definitely a magical image. Um, okay, next slide. And so for all of that time, for this two and a half million years that we're learning to do art and we're creating religion and we're becoming fully human, we were not monsters and destroyers. And this is her, her real point in the book in going into this background. We were participants in the natural cycles of life, in um, you know the death that has to happen for life to continue. We understood that, we participated in it and we tried to do it well. So I think this all goes to her point that as humans, our template is that gynocentric biophilic model and that try as patriarchy does, it cannot erase that biophilia from our bodies and our brains. Okay, next slide. So Andre Collard had an overarching framework that I think really holds even if some of the details turn out to be a little bit incorrect in her telling, but specifically the origins of patriarchy. If you want to understand that, I really suggest the book, The Creation of Patriarchy by Gerda Lerner. And it was discussed by our very own Joe Bro with Holly Lawford Smith. So you can just listen to the crib notes and go on and, and watch that one after you watch this one. Um, and Gerda Lerner's book, I think is the one that really um, lays that story out so clearly about the, the transition from uh, the sort of gynocentric culture to patriarchy, patriarchy getting worse and worse through agriculture and, and everything that happened then. So. 
Um, great Mary, book. I'm going to pass it back to you. That was a that was a great book. Um, Origins of Patriarchy. Yeah. You know, um, it, it, goddess worship was was about the relationship between women and nature. It wasn't about women learning to dominate, or it, it was about um, really living in harmony. And there are some quotes in the book um, from uh, you know from, from Native Americans, from other indigenous peoples that talk about that. Um, and how did it happen? Well, The Origins of Patriarchy by Gerda Lerner um, is, a, is a phenomenal book. She also um, talks about uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh. Um, and, you know, if you if you don't know anything about that or if the only thing you know about that was Patrick Stewart's soliloquy in Star Trek, um, it, it, very, very quickly, Gilgamesh was the king of Uruk, which is what is now, you know, Iraq on a, some dried up section of the Euphrates River. Um, he was a tyrant. He tormented his people. He was very warlike, um, very oppressive to to nature, to animals, to to women. And the patron god um, of Uruk ordered the mother goddess. Um, it, it, you know, and this is okay. <laughs> One of the first documented uh, um, uh, examples of men ordering women around. Um, ordered the mother goddess to create a companion for Gilgamesh to tame him, make him less cruel. So they created Enkidu, who was described as a wild man, but but lived in harmony with nature and with animals. And Enkidu was corrupted and made savage by Gilgamesh. Um, and so there are a bunch of examples about this, um, like early examples of male socialization. Next slide, please, Joe. Um, animistic societies in which everything is endowed with soul. They do not strive as we do toward independence from nature, nor do they view nature as a collection of organisms engaged in the problem of staying alive for the benefit of humans. We, on the other hand, we no longer think of ourselves as children of Mother Earth, but as children of culture. And as such, we unravel our isolated existence, disconnected from the beasts and everything that is. Um, next slide, please. Um, the next chapter, um, this is uh, out of orders. Um, there is a chapter um, about um, uh, about um, experimentation on animals, um, and it's I, you know I kind of didn't even want to, but you know we we talked about this and it was like oh we have to talk about this because it's really horrible. Um, there are uh, descriptions of very, very disturbing, cruel, sadistic experiments on dogs and monkeys and some other animals. Um, most of us can disconnect from that if we, you know, we just think about, oh, they gave, you know, um, they gave, you know, uh, drugs they're experimenting on to rats and mice. And and some of us may have had those animals as pets. Most of us do not get the same sort of uh, um, visceral reaction to the horrible things um, that have been done to um to animals um, uh, like like monkeys and and um, and uh, dogs and things like that. Um, Robert White of Case Western Reserve University and what became the Cleveland Clinic include his work, his achievements, his so-called achievements include removing the brains of monkeys and dogs and preserving them alive, grafting a brain on the throat of a living dog, transplanting the heads of rats and monkeys onto the body. Who thinks of this stuff? Um, who thinks of this stuff? Um, this is this is a very very male approach to uh, um, to to animals, to what we can do with animals. That they become tools. Animals become tools 
um, to achieve um, some sort of goal. Next slide, please. Um, and it really is torture of animals. Um, it is possible to traumatize the sense out of living creatures, bring them to the point at which they submit to any atrocity without a whimper while becoming hopelessly dependent upon their torturers. Does that sound familiar for women who have um, who have been abused by men? Does that sound familiar? Yeah, it does, because it's it's the same thing. Um, the professed astonishment manifested by the authors of the above-cited passages is as gratuitous as it is hypocritical. Um, they talked about applying them as often as one wishes in order to to get the information that they wanted, um, and it's it's sadism. And they were published as legitimate scientific activities um, and funded um, as ways to elucidate elucidate the healing of damaged minds, psychology, psychiatry, which is the institution institutionalization of cruelty. Um, how does this happen? There's a fundamental male socialization that has happened um, for thousands and thousands of years. Next slide, please. Um, an animal experimenters such as Bernard Pavlov, Melzak, and Scott are not qualitatively different um, from those of Marquis de Sade. And Pavlov, we, you know, there are all sorts of jokes and things about Pavlov, Pavlov's dogs, you ring the bell, but he did some some truly, truly sadistic, horrible experiments that, and believe me, I've, I've left most of this out because um, it's just horrendous what, what these men did. Um, Andrea Dworkin devoted a lengthy essay to Desaad, um, who took what um, the kinds of things that, um, that the animal experimenters do and, and did it to women. He rationalized his brutality the same way as experimenters rationalized their cruelty to animals. It's just normal. This is what men do. Um, he says he's guilty of nothing more than simple libertinage, such as is practiced by all men, more or less according to their natural temperaments. And Andrea Dworkin, God, she was brilliant. Um, points out that the modern fascination with Desaad <clears throat> resides in the fact that his sexual obsessions are both forbidden and common. And like many men, he held the use of women as his absolute right. Common practice, blaming the victim, all go hand in hand in justifying the sadism of animal research, as well as the sadism of male sexual violence. Um, this is male socialization um, writ large. And it's doing the same thing to animals, to nature, as as to women. Next slide, please. Um, very, very disturbing um, chapter. And, um, it, you know, the author, she she does point out that um, it's not that women are not capable of being angry. You know, women are usually without men are pretty happy. <laughs> um, but it, it's not that women can't be angry. We can be. And it's not that we don't manifest that anger and aggression. <clears throat> we can when we need to. But the anger is a genuine feeling. Men do not violate from anger. They violate from the will to dominate and from wanting to conform to the image of maleness, male socialization. Um, this a psychoanalyst and neurologist at Northwestern University unwittingly defined the essence of male aggression as an urgent assertion of omnipotence and vulnerability and immortality that leads man to seek absolute control over his material universe and deny death itself. Material universe um, includes um, uh, nature. It includes all of nature. It includes, um, you know, animals that <clears throat> that people innocently used for food. I mean, there's a a quote earlier in the book about um, about you know hunting just being sort of a ritualized thing. Um, 
many uh, indigenous people still, when they hunt to feed their families, will give thanks to the animal for giving its life. Um, and that was just a simple thing of, of people just staying alive, feeding their families. Um, but it has become um, more than more than that is, you know, trophy hunting and men just hunting for the uh, for the for the male bonding, for the aggression or for um, not calling out the, the weak, which, you know, when an animal kills, <clears throat> it kills the weak that are straggling behind as a as a flock of zebras is running away. No, men don't do that. They want the biggest animals, you know, with the with the biggest antlers and things like that. It's different. Next slide, please. To be to be men, this guy says, a professor of medical ethics, to be men, we must be in control. That is the first and the last ethical word. Um, fortunately, there are a few people like Eric Fromm who said that the, he know, noted that the core of sadism, common to all its manifestations, is the passion to have absolute control over a living being, whether an animal, a child, a man, or a woman. Um, Eric Fromm is probably one of the few things that I can actually recommend um, somebody going on to read uh, in, in so much of this book that, I mean, reading those experiments, if you want to read them in the book, it's, it's really horrible. Next slide, please. Um, the products of technological and experimental research, human animal hybrids, human computer, human animal computer combinations have been variously designated chimeras, subhumans, parahumans, etc. And when these products deviate from the bioengineer's designs, they're called monsters. Um, again, Robert White, this guy at Case Western Reserve in, in Cleveland Clinic, is a headhunter specializing in head transplants. If head transplant sounds too gruesome, we can minimize the effect by using the Greek word for head, cephalon. Um, besides having some success in preserving the living brains of dogs and monkeys, makes me want to vomit he has transferred the decapitated heads of rats and monkeys onto the bodies of other decapitated rats and monkeys. This is um, very prescient um, uh, um, uh, prediction of what was going to happen that Jennifer Billick has also written about um, transhumanism. Um, this is this is something that was was thought to be just so bizarre and so off the wall and would never happen. And who could possibly believe this stuff? But this is um, the core. These are the seeds of transhumanism, which we see today. Um, next slide, please. Uh, case in point. Um, uh, here we go. Ethics of genetic control. A uterus can be implanted in a human male's body. His abdomen has spaces and a gestation started by artificial fertilization and egg transfer. Hypogonadism, medications to induce hypogonadism, could be used to stimulate milk from man's rudimentary breasts. Men, too, have mammary glands. If surgery could not construct a cervical canal, the delivery could be affected by cesarean section, and the male transsexualized mother nurse his own baby. And um, Collard says, um, can there be any clearer, more extreme statement of male womb envy and desire to appropriate female power by eliminating woman in nature? Um, a major um, teaching hospital on the East Coast for many, many years had a uh, had a you know an offer of we'll pay anybody a million dollars who can figure out how to get a man pregnant, and that was you know fifty or sixty years ago, um, and and people just just laughed at it that a it could never be done, which it probably can't ever be done, and b who would want to do that? I mean, what man would ever want to do that? Um, and here we are in 
2023 and there are men who want to do this. Um, and somebody in the set in the chat is noting that they're doing that in Sydney hospital, um, transplanting uteruses. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've, we have heard about um, that being attempted. Next slide, please. So this one's mine. Um, yeah, the other you. thing about that, the, the, yeah, that uterine transplant business is um, just the, I mean, it really shows the level of their disengagement from just the reality of being alive, that they really think that the human body or that any living body is like a series of Lego blocks that you can just sort of snap parts on and off, you know, to, to turn a man into a woman. And it's, yeah. it's not just the lack of a uterus, the entire female body is what gestates which is why this is never going to be possible. But they, it's like, they don't, they should know that. And they don't because they can't, they just refuse to see that like life is not a machine. You know, you, you can take a machine apart and put it back together. That's why it's a machine. You can't do that with a living creature. You kill it. Um, and so anyway, this is just more of the necrophilia and the sadism. So here's our friend, Martine Rothblatt. Um, the essential disembodiment of computers is the dream of the necrophiliac. Um, and necrophiliacs uh, are obsessed with robots and machines. This is one of the things that Eric Crum talks about in the in his book. Um, so there are now men who want us to upload ourselves into the internet. And here's Martin Rothblatt, he's one of them. Um, okay, next slide. He is a tech and medical billionaire who has declared himself a woman, of course. His life goal is to, quote, tear down walls and barriers that exist between the digital world and biological existence, and doing so with the creation of a I think we uh, are froze. Um, doing so with the creation of a new species of robot, um, which he is very, very committed to. Um, he has... Um, he has made references to this and it's unclear um, what he's actually been doing. And go ahead, Lear, I finished the, uh, the quote. Yeah, I'm just waiting for the next slide. Um, anyway, his, in this Bible that called the Truce of the Terrorism, he outlines, here we go, um, nanobots are gonna replace all life. Humans will upload themselves into computers to live forever and technology will take over the universe, becoming omniscient, omnipotent and omnificent. He says point blank that he is creating God. Uh, at least Victor Frankenstein in all his arrogance was content to create a humanoid. Rothblatt intends to do away with biology entirely. This is narcissistic rage, driving the disorder to his predictable endpoint, necrophilia. Enraged that he can never be a woman, which he must know beneath his dense layers of denial, he would destroy all life in revenge. So it's like those guys who are the quote family annihilators who kill the ex and the children and her mother and the neighbor and the dog in their rage because they can no longer control her. Um, this is Martine Rothblatt. This is what these men are doing. And it's all of life that they are enraged at because they can't have what they want. So the biosphere will, has become the technosphere and eventually it will end at the necrosphere. This is the end point of all of this. Um, okay, next slide. Um, so Collard's answer to the robotization and mechanization of human experience, which she saw coming, and this was before the internet had happened to any of us, the robotization of life, of which the above is but an extreme form, is nothing new, but it seems to me that it takes place, it takes people 
morbidly alienated from feeling to draw such blueprints of space colonies. According to some scientific geniuses, we even need the help of machines to tell us what we feel. Dr. Joe Camilla of the San Francisco Langley Porter Neuropsychiatric Institute suggests that in the 21st century, it will be possible to mediate emotions with machines. Somewhere, someone may sit in an armchair and play a musical instrument controlled by brainwaves conducted through electrodes pasted to his head, which will enable him to hear his moods as he would hear a symphony. Looks like the air froze again. Um, he, was lead, he would lead his own orchestra, so to speak. He would feel himself. What about lovers? They would be freed of the difficulties people so often have when they try to express their emotions in words. They could flirt through their brainwaves. Best of all, children attached to biofeedback machines would learn that when they have certain emotions, their palms sweat. Are you back with us, Leah? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can, can now. Okay. Yeah, I'm maybe up to I maybe. Yeah, maybe I am too earthbound. Maybe I love this earth the way it is with its insects and weeds, rains and cold spells. Maybe it is because I know what I feel when my palms sweat. Whatever the reason, I find space colonies an outrageous proposition belonging to the nether regions beyond hell and fallen angels stagnating in rank amorality. I just think this is marvelous. This is why I loved this book when I first read it. And she's exactly right. It is just hideous to think about these things. Like who dreams of killing the planet and leaving for somewhere else? Um, utter sadists. So, all right, next slide. So this is the scientific managerial perspective is what she's critiquing. Um, and there's a book called The Wooing of the Earth by this guy, Dubo DeBoss. I don't, I have never read this book, but she's, critiquing this book in here. And I think her critique is, is well worth um, just quoting. So she says, many of Dubose's statements about human intervention into the natural order beg many questions, which to my mind are critical. For example, he writes that the earth has potentialities that remained unexpressed until properly manipulated by human labor and imagination. But this also takes love. Is the Grand Canyon potentially unexpressed? Was the Amazon forest potentially unexpressed until developers started to exploit it by raising such huge tracts of it that real environmentalists are now concerned about the oxygen supply to the world? Was the atom potentially unexpressed inside the elements of matter? I have purposely chosen examples of awesome proportions, large and small, because they help bring into focus several important questions Dubois passes over. What is proper manipulation? Who determines which facets of Earth are ready for or need such quickening? Next slide. What values inform these decisions? And who has the wherewithal to bring about these transformations? My mind is not put at ease either when I read Dubose's predictions of trends in the human relationship between humankind and Earth to be, quote, an increasingly centralized management based on the use of highly automated technologies derived from sophisticated science. I mistrust this impersonal management spawned in laboratories. I mistrust the centralization of power, data, laws, and resources against which the common woman has precious little recourse. As for, quote, love, what does love mean? Does the desire to express the, quote, latent possibilities of the earth? Des okay, sorry. Desire to express the latent possibilities of the earth 
This is a wooer's love, which presses out what he wants. Next slide. Without taking into consideration the needs of the wooed. To love the earth as potential is equivalent to loving women as potential that remains unexpressed until properly manipulated by man's labor and imagination. Love without reciprocity is exploitation. So here are a few examples of what she tried to warn us about. This is what happens when the sadist's love of control reaches its endpoint of necrophilia. So next slide. And these are all things that have happened since um, you know, her, her death. She did not see this, but this is what they're doing now. So this is mountaintop removal for coal. Um, they're leveling entire mountain ranges to get to the last of the coal. Okay, next slide. Um, so this is a toxic lake in China. Um, this is for rare earth mining. So this is cell phones, computers, um, you know, the great glorious green revolution, which looks exactly like the rest of the industrial revolution, um, just utterly devastating. This is not gonna heal except in a geologic timescale. It is so utterly toxic, nothing will grow there again. Uh, next slide. Good old fashioned de deforestation. So this is what's happened to North America. Um, it used to be that uh, a, a squirrel could run all the way from Maine to Texas without touching the ground because the, the forest was so thick, but that is clearly over. Um, next slide. And of course the climate crisis. So um, we have reached tipping point, past tipping point and God knows where this is gonna end. So, okay, next slide. The opposite of manipulating nature in order to express it is to leave it alone and assume that nature knows best. So, I mean, in the end, she calls for all kinds of activism. She calls for us to re-engage with the consciousness that we once had and that is still within us, this biophilic understanding that we are just one small part of nature, that we are dependent on all of it. And that this web of life is so complex, we could never understand it. And that all of our attempts to manipulate it just end up destroying it. So uh, last slide. I just want to leave you with a more biophilic image here of, you know, here are the bison still. There's only about 1,200 of them left that are still um, actually bison, but, you know, they're 100% bison. But here they are doing their thing, protecting their young, and um, hopefully to inspire us to uh, protect the ones that we love with the same kind of ferocity as these bison are showing this photographer, who I hope lived through the experience. <laughs> anyway, um, that's the book. That's that's our slides. So. What do you think, Marion? Um, I think that, you know, women's experiences, you know, with oppression and abuse, what women experience, um, as well as, you know, and she talks about the experience of mothering. And and keep in mind that is that is not, you know, worshiping the divine feminine or fetishizing mother, motherhood or anything like that. But all of that um, makes us really more um, aware, sensitive to the oppression and abuse of nature um, and probably better situated to remedy it. Um, the way you, that picture of the bison running across the grasslands, I mean, if we just left the grasslands alone to recover, you know, if we just like stopped yeah. plowing the grasslands, just left them alone to recover, um, that would make a huge difference in terms of carbon capture. That would make a huge difference in terms of changing the, um, you know, or, of helping, um, the American Midwest to recover. Um, I have, um, I have heard people talk about the, uh, you know, just, you know, 
we need crops, we need to grow this, we need to grow that. Um, the soil has been destroyed. The Midwest had incredible soil. It really had phenomenal soil. And now it's gone. I mean, there's, there's maybe an inch, but that rich two foot deep um, soil um, that uh, settlers found when they when they got there is all gone. And and um, as climate changes um, and as things get warmer and warmer and warmer, the ability of that soil to recover is is markedly diminished. And people will say, well, the breadbasket of the world will then be in Montana and Canada. It's like, no, it takes it takes hundreds of years or even thousands of years geologic time for soil to be created that is amenable to the kind of agriculture that um, that we that we had a a brief burst with um, in the Midwest before the soil was destroyed. So so this is not like, well, we can manipulate things and just make it better. Um, things are not fungible. You can't just say, oh, we'll all invent um, a piece called it like another Lego brick that will that will replace something that is in nature. Um, and and part of this is that, you know, and this is the part that she got right, um, is that uh, male socialization has been happening from prehistoric times at a, at a certain point. It started happening. And that has what that is what has changed. Um, women's experience in the world being oppressed and abused and nature's experience of being oppressed and abused. Yeah, um, and just to touch on the soil business again, it's, I mean, I've seen a lot of the statistics on this and there's people who, who really think that if we could just repair even 80% of the world's trashed out grasslands and um, we could sequester enough carbon to actually stop you know, this ever accelerating pace of global warming. And America alone, if we were to do it here, it would it would take, um, you know, less than a decade and we would actually become a carbon sequestering nation. Um, that's how quickly uh, the grasses and the ruminants built soil. Um, because remember the building block of soil is carbon. Um, and this is why agriculture actually marks the beginning of global warming, particularly rice agriculture. Um, but when you look in the, you know, the, the record there in, in the fossil record, that's, you know, what you find is that it's the climate starts changing when people start doing agriculture. Um, and there's a little dip in the rise in carbon that's the Black Death, the, the bubonic plague, because so many people died. It was like a third of Europe died and, you know, a huge chunk of Asia died. I think it came from China originally. So, you know, across that entire landmass, huge numbers of people died. And what that meant was the forest came back because they stopped destroying it, doing agriculture. And because of that, there's a dip in the carbon record right there. Um, and then, of course, you know, people just do the whole thing all over again and take the forest back down. So then it goes right back up. But that's really the beginning of global warming. It's not the industrial age. That, and certainly I'm not in any kind of denial about this, but, um, you know, the, the, the application of fossil fuel to this process has been an enormous accelerant and, you know, has really driven the planet to complete crisis. But um, it really started 6,000 years ago with, you know, with the beginning of agriculture. So when you destroy the soil by doing this, you know, you're adding oxygen into the soil with the plow and then the, the, bio, the matter, the organic matter degrades really quickly. And where does it go? Well, the carbon goes up. That's, that's where it ends up is in, in the atmosphere. So that's what's happened. Um, we could bring it back down. And when I say we, I don't really mean humans because we don't really do much in this process. But if we let the ruminants and the grasses take care of it, they would be able to do this. So I still have hope. I don't think we're, you know, completely over the edge yet. But, you know, the problem is we're we're all headed in completely the wrong direction with this. So, I really just want the people who care the most to understand the nature of the problem, and what the real solutions are. Because um, the 
the great green re revolution that we are being told um, is, is gonna save the day is honestly just more of the same. And there's a great, great quote from Jeff Gibbs in his movie, The Planet of the Humans, where he said, will the machines of industrial civilization save us from industrial civilization? So he's exactly named the problem there. Um, and the answer is no, of course they can't. So anyway, yeah, that's the soil and the bison and the grasses who are some of my very favorite people at this point. Yeah, the, gra the grasslands of the Midwest are probably one of the few areas where you can, I mean, the, the soil could recover. Just let the grasslands take over. Expecting, you know, northern Alberta to become um, like what the, you know, Midwest grasslands are is completely unrealistic. Somebody made reference to um, what we saw happening at the beginning of the COVID lockdowns. And, I, you know, I was, I am absolutely grateful that I was lucky enough so that you know, I was just able to completely telework without going outside for months, um, except, you know, to get food. But but people saw, I mean, dolphins in the canals of Venice. You know, when when is the last time that happened? I saw in my, you know, suburban neighborhood, and I live on a main street, um, deer walking through the street through my backyard, turkeys roaming around that I don't ordinarily see. Um, and that was just like a little you know, experiment in what happens um, when you, when animals can, you know, are not interfered with, what do they do? Well, they start living their lives again. Um, uh, one I, thing you, you had the, you have the slide up, go ahead. Oh, well, I was just going to throw Chernobyl into the mix because, you know, we think of it as one of the worst environmental disasters that's ever happened, but what's at Chernobyl now? And it's like multiple packs of wolves live there. You've got multiple packs of apex predators because there are so many animals that came back. All the people left, they stopped destroying. Go look at the pictures, it's completely amazing. And really rare and endangered animals like Przewalski's horses and stuff have taken up residence um, you know, in this few mile square area where there are basically no people. And I wanna say no people, but there actually are some people there because you know who stayed was the old women and they're not hurting anybody. Um, there were some old people who were just like, I'm not leaving. This is where I've lived my whole life and I'm staying right here. So you can see these photographs of the old sort of babushka ladies, you know, with the little scarves and wearing their little dresses and they, they've got their chickens and their goats and they're out there every day um, just doing their thing and living their lives and, you know, eating their borscht and whatever. Um, and they, they just refuse to leave. So that's who's there. There's a few old ladies and a whole bunch of wild animals that have managed to set up residence. So, which is to say, as scary as it sounds, that industrial civilization, the daily workings of industrial civilization are worse for the planet than a nuclear disaster. One other place um, in the world where, which is left alone is there's a, a very large, wide um, area between North and South Korea. Yeah, South Korea. Um, that, I mean, yeah. And obviously nobody goes there. <laughs> Nobody's nope. allowed to go there. And there are birds there that just like, you know, are... are rare birds i mean it, it, there's just wildlife there's there's birds there's there's plants, plants. No there's plants. Years. Yeah. yeah there's plants there's insects it is this you know it's it's, it's um a human horror but it is lush a, teeming like wildlife preserve because none it's of the a human horror but it's um but it's a, a nature paradise um on on the flip side you had that slide about inner mongolia um this this also speaks to um, um, to oppression of of local peoples and I read a book a while ago called um, The Emperor Far Away which was about far flung areas of China and I think it was from like 
uh, I don't know, the early 2000s, um, before anyone really knew about the Uyghurs who weren't like right there, talked about the oppression of the Uyghurs and, and you know, working in the mines and things like that and how their way of life was 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 being destroyed. And now they're trying, you know, they're being exterminated, essentially. Um, so all these things that that we are doing to nature also affect people. Um, there was a question in the chat of if there are any problems with this with this book. Yeah, there, there are. <laughs> there are problems with this book. Um, she she talks about you know um, she talks about goddess worship, which is fine, and she got that part correct, and she got she got it correct that um, the way men are socialized ultimately became socialized to oppress um, nature was also how they oppress women. Um, but the she got a whole bunch of other stuff wrong in terms of like when agriculture began, how you know what happened politically when it began. Um, you know that that women were relegated exclusively to gathering. No, they were hunters. I mean, for a long time, women were hunting right along with the men. So she got that wrong. What else did you spot that was that was wrong? Here? Yeah, it was a bit muddled in the middle there. Like when she's trying to explain where patriarchy comes from, and it didn't. It just none of it held together, and and a lot of it was just factually incorrect. So, um, read it for you know the her. I mean, her overarching framework is absolutely holds. I think we both agree there. And the parts of this book that are amazing are fabulous. The, the last chapter is just fantastic. Um, I loved it. But yeah, that middle that middle chapter where she's talking about, you know, sort of her version of the beginning of patriarchy just, just goes completely off the rails in a bunch of places. And I know you mentioned um, um, Gilgamesh and her reading of that is just a bit odd because the main point of the Gilgamesh story is you know, what civilization is doing to nature. And so, you know, it's about Gilgamesh deforesting, taking down this mighty forest to build this huge city, which is literally what civilization is. And she seems to kind of miss that point entirely, like that that is what, and it's considered, you know, the first piece of literature that's sort of the foundation of, of Western culture. Um, so anyway, just parts of it are just sort of odd. So um, I think, you know, if she, had a chance to rewrite this book she'd probably have a lot more information in front of her and would get a lot more of this right but the other thing that's very hard to read of course is the animal experimentation chapter and i remember now that when i first read it i mean some of that stuff just gave me nightmares it's so the level of sadism is just so hideous because it's not even just oh let's try a drug on a mouse which is horrible enough which is like you said it's like diabolical you know that you would think to do these things to, to creatures is so it's just horrendous and I don't know whether you want to read that chapter or not. I guess this is my my trigger warning here. Um, if you already know that these things are horrible, you don't necessarily have to re-traumatize yourself, I guess is, is my point. So if you want to skip that section, I, I wouldn't blame you if you already are somebody who's, you know, knowledgeable and completely opposed to animal experimentation. You don't really need to do this to yourself again. It, it was very disturbing. That chapter was very, very disturbing. Yeah, the Gilga, I think she was just using her... Um, or you know, telling of the Gilgamesh epic to talk about um, you know, you know, one man socialized and corrupted another man, and um, yeah. and that destroyed nature as well as it um, you know, as well as how women were treated. Um, yeah. Yeah. Are there any other um, any other questions in the chat? Anybody have any other questions? Um, I, I mean, I think if you know. Again, the book is you know it was an an early effort at something that. Um, hardly anybody was looking at. 
she did she does make a reference to a book we talked about a couple of weeks ago susan griffin's women in nature you know um who uh you know talked about this deep life-sustaining connection interconnection between women and the earth um and she made reference to women who wrote um um ecological works um works about nature um that weren't necessarily um feminist but like Rachel Carson, um, we know about Silent Spring in the 60s, DDT and pesticides. Um, about a, uh, a decade before that, she wrote um, a book called The Sea Around Us, um, where she talked about, you know, the great mother of life, the sea. Um, the book also makes reference to Louise Young's Earth's Aura in 1977, um, talking about man's greed and drive for power um, from, you know, uh, in reference to uh, nature and, and conquering nature. And, and finally, she makes reference to um, Helen Caldecott's book called Nuclear Madness at the end of the 70s, um, talking about the, the nuclear industry. Um, so if you want to um, pick up those books, they're probably a lot better than this one. <laughs> but read this book. I mean, I'm not saying don't read it. It's just, you know, it had some problems. Um, yeah. And she also at the end, you know, she talks very positively about the direct actions that Greenpeace were doing at that point. Because, you know, they sort of came out of nowhere and were suddenly out in little tiny boats defending whales from whaling ships. And it was really cool when all that stuff started happening. And she very positively references, you know, Greenham Common and Seneca Falls and the kind of activism that, you know, women were doing on masse. I mean, just thousands and thousands of women were active when, and realized that the, that the planet was at risk and that, you know, it was connected to patriarchy and that we needed to do something about it. So... There's a real call to action at the end of the book that um, I find very inspiring as well. Um, and one thing about her that's in her little biography, uh, Marion, you didn't mention this part, but I loved this about her. When she was a young girl, the the local men would go out into the, the woodland where she lived in a rural area and they would capture some of the songbirds because they're very beautiful. They're very brightly colored and they would keep them in cages as sort of pets, as decorations. And she hated it. She hated that these poor birds were being captured like that. And she would go out when they went out and she would beat the bushes and scare the birds so that they couldn't be captured. And then she went up and down the main street in her town where the the, the, the richer people had, um, they'd have like 10 or 12 of these birds in little cages on their front porches as sort of decorative objects. And she couldn't stand it. So she would just let them go. She would open the doors and let the birds fly free. And I just, we see a sister in Andre Collard. Um, I just think it's marvelous. Yeah. That she did. And then went on, of course, resist the Nazis. And then her, after the war, her parents said, well, you either have to get married or uh, you have to take a secretarial course. Those are your options. And she's like, no, I'm not doing either of those. And she didn't know a word of English. She hopped on a boat and she moved to America, um, learned English and ended up getting a PhD from Harvard. So um, very driven, um, somebody who absolutely loved her freedom and the freedom of all living creatures. So, you know, I, I think she's a wonderful foremother, sister. Yeah, Harvard told her that she'd never get a PhD, but she did it anyway. And she was the only woman in her class that made it through. All the others dropped out one by one. Yeah. So she did it. You know, she was a real. Uh, a I real think partner. we're. I think we're about done. All right, we did. Um, thanks, everybody. Glad your phone held up. Can't <laughs> <Okay. Yeah, me> do. <laughs>